This episode is sponsored by TGW.com. The Golf Warehouse is an online store that's an awesome place to snag some new gear whenever you need it. I know that over the years I've picked up a bunch of good stuff from TGW. Always feels like I'm at a shortage of, who knows, shirts, shoes, gloves, extra hats, maybe a new putter after the last one got thrown in a lake. But did you know that they actually have a 230,000 square foot warehouse for the 40,000 products that they sell? That's pretty crazy. So if you need some essentials like gloves, range finders, shorts, pants, go check out TGW. They actually have their own brand, which delivers a high level of performance with pricing you need on gear that you go through frequently, like that kind of stuff. Make sure to check out what TGW is doing at tgw.com slash GSL. And you can use the coupon code GSL for an additional percentage off. Make sure to go over to tgw.com slash GSL and make sure to use that coupon code to let them know that you're listening to the podcast and that you headed over to their site and purchase something. You are listening to the Golf Science Lab podcast. My name is Cordy Walker and I'm on a mission to figure out how to improve the way that we learn and get better at golf. I've been able to travel all over the world talking to leaders in the industry, from instructors to researchers to golfers themselves, learning how they're getting better at golf and what that means for you. We've talked about types of practice on the podcast before. Quickly, you know, something like block practice, right? If we had task A, B, and C, we would do task A five times in a row, task B five times in a row, and task C five times in a row, and then random practice where we would be randomizing these different tasks. And over the course of this podcast, we have talked about the pros of random practice and how we need to shift toward that. And as a whole, I believe that's true because random practice demands that we start to think a little bit while hitting a bucket of balls and trying to practice. And Having some thought, having some of that cognitive engagement, big word there, sorry about that, but it's key towards training that's actually going to help you. And anytime you can stay mentally engaged in a task, and as as Peter Arnott said in last week's episode, when time seems to fly by and you're not sure how long you've been practicing, those are some of the traits of engagement. Those are some of the traits of better practice and training that we need to work for, that we need to strive for. And I want to dig a little deeper in this episode on improving practice, giving you some specific suggestions from today's guest around tournament prep and practice right before a tournament and also the role of block practice and how some practice experts are starting to talk and think a little bit differently about what block practice actually is. The sponsor for today's episode is Gravity Fit. Gravity Fit is a great feedback device and they're helping to fill the white space between knowing what is happening in your golf swing and actually making a change. As motor learning and effective practice is heating up, Gravity Fit is making equipment and instructional content that fits squarely into this space by providing real-time feedback on posture and movement quality. PGA Tour winner Cameron Smith is a huge advocate for the products, using them for anything from gym work to pre-round warm-up to hitting full shots on the range. Cam realizes the importance of being provided with consistent feedback on his posture and movement, simply going through his usual routines or really trying to make a technical change. Cam knows there's a strong relationship between his body moving right and his ball striking and gravity fit is a key part of ensuring that he is on 
the right track. The feedback that Gravity Fit really gives is fantastic. Check out how it works. The best thing that you can do is watch a video. We have one over on our site, golfsciencelive.com slash Gravity Fit. We have a bunch of videos there. You can head over to gravityfit.com to learn more. They have an article on there so you can see how Cam incorporates Gravity Fit into his prep. But there's an interesting discussion around block practice going on for for decades. To be to be honest, I think the, one of the things I'm I'm, I'm seeing uh, in more recent years is that it's it's almost impossible to do block practice. And when we actually go back to the what the definition of block practice actually was and where it came from, let's say from those early studies of you know working on three tasks A, B, and C, and block practice is a load of A, then followed by a load of B, and followed by a load of C. Compare that to random practice when I do. Uh, a, B, C, D, and randomize it, and so on and so forth. Because when we actually know what we know about variability of movement, it's it's extremely difficult to to actually engage in in any kind of practice that this it's the same thing happening. So there's a part of me almost feels like it, it needs it it almost needs a redefinition that it's it's hard it's not so much block practice but control practice that if we're actually trying to do the exact same thing every time which people may may use the term block practice that that is for me detrimental in in any shape or form i think before performance or not just after a bad performance or not if if we're working on trying to hyper control a movement i think we're, we we go into a very dangerous space there and i think like there's a paper that my, myself and two collaborators, Mark Williams and Paul Ford, we have currently in review where we looked at where we looked at in intense practice. And from the outside looking in, it's block practice. All the all the participants did was the same task. But when we actually infused with that task some reflective practice, there was no other there was no other distinguishable part of the practice that actually looked like block practice apart from just the task, because Every time we asked them to reflect, it had a, it had a cleaning of the slate effect on the practice. So then each time they went back to the exact same task that they would have done previously, but they had they were now approaching it like it was a new task again. And because of how complex our, the system is to to try and replicate any movement twice, let alone three, four, five, fifty times, I think that the, the, that's where maybe a bit of distinction needs to come in. I think what we what we call block practice isn't really what the original definition of block practice is. And it's kind of, and I think, as I said, if if, if we maybe slightly alter it into control practice, which I would see a lot of happening in golf, where you've got guys on the range breaking down their swing and they'll stop their swing at position one and they'll do that five times. And then they'll, then they'll come up and then go to position two in their backswing. And they'll do that five times, and and he, after each of the each of the times they stop mid mid backswing, then then try to execute the, the normal swing. And you're they they're in a space there where they're actually trying to control their practice, and that for me is is very different to block practice when you consider the idea of just trying to repeat a task, a whole task, be that a full golf swing. It's just not possible. And I think you know the the idea of what's what's behind the task and the context and all of that is important but i think there there may be a need maybe maybe we're moving into a new space where we need to be we need to distinguish even block practice a bit more and um, 
because as, as I said, some of the detrimental work that I see in all sports of when we have athletes trying to control the very minutia of a movement, I find to be quite a, quite a dangerous space from a performance perspective. Our guest today is Dr. Ed Coughlin, and he gives us a starting point for this conversation here, maybe a shift in our understanding of block practice, that block practice isn't the evil that needs to be avoided. The act itself of block practice is not the problem. It's something more than that. It's more of how we're going about doing it. It's that we're becoming into a different state than what we would be doing on on the golf course, potentially. And it's more about what we're doing during that action than the action itself. And in this episode, we're going to hear from Ed. He works with a lot of different players. He has a background far beyond golf and how he's helping players on tour now improve their training and just plain get better at shooting lower scores. Hi, I'm Ed Collin, and my job is I'm a, I'm a practice coach, essentially, from the practitioner perspective. Academically, I'm a lecturer in sports science in Cork Institute of Technology and, and Skill Acquisition in University College Dublin in Ireland. As a practitioner, I work with athletes in the environments that they actually inhabit when they practice and when they compete to try and identify ways of making that practice really efficient and really likely to transfer into the pressurized state of of competition where their lives and their careers depend on it. Um, that's in a nutshell, I suppose, I, at the moment, yeah, I'm very fortunate to be working across a number of sports um, and have done for a number of years, and one being golf. All right, so we started this conversation talking about block practice, that maybe it's not the act that's the problem, but it's more the mindset or what we're bringing into it, what we're doing around the task that is. So let's let's look at this training and let's talk about how we should approach it. Ed has a lot of good ideas here. And, and I, we're going to start this conversation, this question with a concept. Are there two different types of practice? Is there one type of practice which we would go to develop skills? And is there a second type of practice to prepare for tournament? And do those look different. And this is kind of a, a fascinating journey or thought process that we're headed down here. I would like to think now where where I'm at as a coach in 2018, I would like to think no. If you asked me that question 15 years ago, I probably would have said yes. But no, where I am right now, I, I don't think there should be much difference. Uh, for me, practice for whatever you're practicing is preparation for for competition. So then the practice you do then before competition should have that same feeling of, okay, I'm preparing to win here. I'm preparing to give my best effort on this day. And that should be the case, I think. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we're talking here about that elite golfer space. And I think if that is the case, well, then, no, there should be no difference in my philosophy, really. So whether it's during a month off or the day before the tournament. Ed is suggesting that we bring the same philosophy, the same mindset into our training. And that philosophy is I'm preparing to win. I'm preparing to give my best effort on this day. That you aren't taking anything for granted and that this shot, this moment matters and I'm going to give it my attention. I'm going to be present right here. As an observer, if you go to any PGA Tour tournament, mm. you know, as an observer, this is what you might see is you're going to see people on the range in a block practice kind of format. They're hitting a six iron to a target 
they're going to hit a you know bunch of shots. They've, maybe they've got a coach and a caddy there, maybe giving some suggestions. They're using alignment sticks, et cetera, engaging a lot of block practice scenarios. And then they're going to go out to the course. You know, they're going to hit some shots. If they miss one, they're going to drop down another one, hit a, hit a second one to try to, you know, get it closer, you know, and they just might throw a couple balls around the green to, to chip and putt around. From an outside observer, it doesn't seem very structured. And from a, you know, learning principle concept doesn't seem very optimized. Mm. Maybe take us behind the scenes of, of does that story, you know, as an, as an observer, does that story resonate with you? And then like, what is actually going on and what can we take from this? Yeah, that's, that's a, first of all, that's a brilliant question, but it's also a brilliant synopsis of what actually does happen out on tour. Um, I, I'm very often some like the guy, some of the people that work with me they're always kind of looking to me to say ed must find this hilarious kind of thing you know because i do find a lot of things that i see out there hilarious in in just they lack a performance element to them it's a lot of just going through the motions because this is kind of what we've always done and this is just the culture of what we do and i haven't questioned this ever in fact and that for me is from a performance perspective to not question what you're doing is just, it's criminal, to be perfectly honest. And it's its its why we have such roller coaster type seasons for golfers. They'll win. They might, if they're fortunate, they might have a win in this season. And then because golf is what it is, it's a very, it's a very wealthy sport. Well, one win is all you kind of need. But then the rest of the season is very slim pickings. Which be, so then the nature of the game with so much money at stake on one win, it kind of feeds apart from the very top guys. It it feeds a complacency in one sense, and so when you're talking about you know what you see on a tour and as you you you've been around that space and seen what they do, it is that I've been stunned to see walk practice rounds with with players and they go out in groups and so on and so forth. And you're seeing a guy, and you're like, he took not a single note for 18 holes of a practice round. He threw down three balls here and did this, but never, never took a note on that. Now, there aren't too many, you know, savants in the world where they're able to, where they have this photographic memory capacity to be able to just remember every single detail. Okay, so I'm assuming that for the mere mortals like the most of us, you've got to take these things down. You've got to say, okay, well, that's an interesting slope here and that's a different line there. It's the speed there. That's that's quite interesting. It might, it's not going to be the same the next day, but it's certainly one to, you know, take into consideration at this time of the day with this kind of wind. I might, happen, I might have something like that the next day. I might, I might get myself in that position, but there's no note-taking taking down. So again, we would even know from our own motor learning and motor control research that, Task consolidation is enhanced when you take note, <laughs> when you reflect on it, when you don't chunk all the information in, into one and then try to retrospectively remember it hours later. You're going to miss stuff. So I think pros could, you know, do better in their practice rounds. And again, it's, it, it's, it's to make their practice rounds more efficient so that you're not out there all day long and on your feet all day long because that's another key thing for guys who are out there for two, three, four, five events in a row on the road or all the travel, time on feet is critical to these guys. So if you don't need to be on your feet, get off your feet. 
get resting. So you're super fresh for that tea time on Thursday morning or Thursday afternoon. And if it's Thursday afternoon, you're on early Friday morning. And it's it's working towards that. It's almost like working back from my tea time. I want to be super fresh Thursday morning. So what do I do between now and then to make sure I'm super fresh on Thursday morning? And I think a lot of that gets lost in what I would classify as junk training, just going through the motions. Like you just said there, doing a practice round. Oh, I hit it offline. I get out another one. Oh, it goes online. Great. Move on. Well, hang, hang on. <laughs> Hang on a second. That there's there's so much more that we can glean from a situation like that, to again in, inform us. Now again, of course, the course will not play the same way every day, but that doesn't mean we can't learn additional elements about what the course is also trying to tell us about how to play it better. And that's one thing. Just just on that point alone about practice rounds, I've been shocked how little note taking takes place, and how it appears like a stroll around as opposed to I'm going to lock this in for a couple of hours here. I'm going to go to a couple of keyholes and I'm going to do the following couple of things just to get an idea. There's a stretch of holes here where it's, it, it's a fade is required because of the shape of the hole. Great. I want to play that stretch because maybe I'm a drawer. I draw the, the, the ball more comfortably. So I want to go out and play those holes. And then I, you know, but there needs to be there needs to be a purpose behind every single thing you're doing because it's 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 your job, essentially. And and I use this phrase a lot. It's about making the boat go faster. And if you're doing it for the sake of doing it, then the boat's not going as fast as it possibly can. And that's a key thing, especially around the space you just mentioned there, for me anyway, is in that practice round, that is a massive opportunity to ready the system for what's about to happen over the next four days. And I don't see it happening as 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 much as it should. And then the, the interesting thing is when you do then see someone doing it well, it's like day and night. It's really, it makes a lot of sense. You, you, you should, and I know this may be impossible, but it's, it should almost be possible to look at golfers and say, yeah, he's actually, he's he's really, he's working here right now. He's really, trying to figure something out here because that's kind of what we see when we watch them on in competition rounds they have that look about them that they're trying to figure something out but there's very rarely that same look of problem solving and so on and so forth in their practice rounds and of course then that's it's incongruent their practice is incongruent to their competition space and i suppose that's where people like me and you know others like me kind of come into the mix to try and make it congruent, make it more of a match. It's about making the boat go faster. This phrase, uh, I think it describes the mission of Golf Science Lab. This mission, this podcast, the education, everything that's going on here is how do we make the boat go faster? How do we improve performance? How do we shoot lower scores? How are we going to lower your handicap? And how are we going to make the most of our time so we're being efficient, that we break out of some of these myths and misconceptions that have held us back and held us in the same cycles of not getting better? We want to make the boat go faster by cutting through all the fluff. And like Ed said, if you're just going out to the course to hang out with friends, to play golf, to have a walk around and enjoy it, yes, that is amazing. To be honest, that's what I love doing most of the time. But I also need to understand that that act is not going to help me with my skill acquisition, help me 
shoot lower scores and improve my skills. And not everything we need to do, it has to be optimized for that, but we need to have that understanding. We need to have that expectation that if we want to get serious about this, that we need to treat our training differently. And I think Ed has some great points here. Someone said to me not so long ago, they were like, you know, I have a really simple putting drill I do just before I go to the tee box and it's just four footers and I do my little circle around four footers and, it's, and I was like, great. But the player was really aware that that wasn't about their putting. That was just a little confidence thing, you know. They're not working on putting there essentially because, if you know, they're not, take, they're not doing these puts from 10 feet, 12 feet. They're in, you know, inside four feet. So it's just a nice long. That's that's a nice twelve puts. Lovely, they're they're in, and even even times when they miss, it's just lovely. I'm just I'm just grooving. I'm just nice. I'm just relaxing. I'm just trying to bring the you know, get, I'm I'm actually over the put thinking about other things. But I'm just as I'm near the tee box, it's my last little thing. That's very different to someone thinking it's oh this is going to transfer. This is just maybe a state of mind that they're that they're in. Let's say. I want to work on my process of competing and I'm going to practice my process of competing so that when I compete, I'm really good at competing because that's what I'm practicing. And I think the technical aspects of golf can get in the way of that. And, and there's some really brilliant swing coaches out there who get that, who have an appreciation that, hang on, we're not here to, to look for perfect here. We're here to look for something that is actually going to enable you to compete because I'm not here asking you to do his swing or her swing or this person's swing or that. I'm here to try and get you to the swing that you feel, yeah, I can do that. Now, how they go about that then, you'd hope, is not through um, blocked practice. And I mean that in the traditional sense of the of that term, let's say, you know, the how it was originally defined. It blocked and, and that's where something is in like I've even a paper that's coming out soon with with my collaborators where we've even identified if you even do the same task, we were working looking at a kicking task back then, if you get someone to do the same task, but actually have them reflect on the task, you can actually override the blocked practice type effect you can actually get very strong effects on their performance that get retained. So it's not just a practice effect, it's a learned effect because we can actually then measure it in retention and it's still there. So these are the type of effects that you'd normally get with random practice where there's high contextual interference. We now have a paper out saying, well, actually you can do that with Brock practice so long as you, you know, you reflect on it. You go through that cycle of, well, what worked there and what didn't? And how can I do it better? And the next one, I'm going to do this. It might be the same shot you're doing, but all of a sudden it's not block practice anymore because you're you're breaking the cycle almost. It might look like the same task, but you're still getting almost that contextual interference effect because you're getting in the way of this high repetition without repetition that is has been shown to be quite detrimental. So this is unlocking some more of the keys around this change in block practice by adding an element of reflection that we're seeing the same retention as potentially with more random practice concepts. That is the problem between block and random is that a block has a lower retention rate than random in, in the studies from past. However, Ed is looking at, is that true in golf when we add an element of reflection? This reminds me of the PAR, P-A-R, concept and paper from Dr. Tim Lee, Dr. Mark Guadagnoli, 
talking about just golf training. It was a, it's a great paper. It's one that we'll link. I'll link here in this article. You can go back to the post on golfsciencelab.com to find this. And it's really a review of learning literature on how we get better at golf. And PAR stands for Plan, Act, Review. It's a mindset shift in an approach to practice. It's saying that golf is a problem-solving activity and that we need to go through that entire process, whether we are in performance or we're in practice. Plan, act, review. It's a process that we need to go through if we want to get the most out of our time and out of our training. What they say to me, the feedback I get is practice is way more intense. They don't appear to need to hit as many balls as previously. And the practice time is equally, because of the intensity and the higher quality, it's shorter, which then gets them more time off their feet, which then gets them more energy preserved, which then gets them more likely to be super fresh on the first tee box. So it's about energy efficiency in that respect. So I I think another thing they would say is that every shot matters, that they get into that space of, no, this, this shot matters right now. And then being able to clear that space, then is and then once it's gone, it's gone. That great acceptance once it's there, but to get into that habit of being able to lock into the importance of the shot that is right in front of them there and then, in practice, because you know the round of golf at the pro level can last five hours. You might only hit, you know, in a good great day, sixty-five shots over five hours. You need to have the capacity to be able to lock it in for that those 40 seconds around that golf shot and then let it go, let it go. Because you add up those 40 seconds over 50, 65 shots, <laughs> you're, you're coming in only around 35, 40 minutes of concentration out, out of five hours. And I think that's something that people don't practice efficiently or sufficiently either. They don't do enough of that type of practice to actually work on that bulletproof robustness that you want them to have when they're in competition. So that the five-footer on the first, on the first round, is just as important as the five-footer on the last, on the 72nd hole, to potentially win the tournament. But of course, what we're led to believe, because of commentary and so on and so forth, this is a much bigger put. No, no, it's it's still a five-footer. And you know what? He mightn't even have to, he might have two puts for this if he didn't miss the five-footer on the first day. But if you can get them into that space, and so few players practice in the space of every shot matters, to be able to develop that ability and that skill to lock it in and then lock it back out. Okay, it's done. I can now go again, build the next shot, next puzzle that's in front of me. So let's practice more efficiently. You know, the simplest concept, if we're bringing more intensity, if we're making things more golf-like, if we're adding in more cognitive engagement, we can have fewer repetitions and we can get more. We can get more out of that time than if you spent double or triple the amount. If you're just floating along, spending a bunch of time, you know, just not really engaged, if you're not making it golf-like, if you aren't having some of these characteristics that Ed has talked about throughout this conversation. And I think this is awesome. We've talked a lot about the mindset here and kind of this philosophy shift that Ed brings toward practice. 
And I think it's, and it's an interesting one. It's one to ponder and one to think about. Maybe jot down a few notes of, hey, here are the three things that I need to change in the way that I approach my training. Here are, you know, a few things that I need to change in the way that I approach performance as well. Maybe jot down a few from here and see what mindsets you need to remember when it's time to go train or when it's time to build your next training program. And we'll end here. I asked Ed to kind of talk through how he suggests that a player warms up. So this is right before a round. We, we've talked a lot about tournament prep and how are we getting ready for tournaments. But what about those moments before a tournament? How are you warming up? How are you getting ready? And what is he suggesting to his players with the best kind of learning and, and practice thoughts in mind? First of all, about that physical preparation initially. Are they ready? Have they done you know what makes them feel loose? Then when they get to the court or when they get to the range, again to to have that connection, that continuity connection for for the maybe some band work they did, some foam rolling they've done, or trigger ball work they've done, and so on and so forth, to get them ready to be mobilized, to uh, mobilize the joints, to then connect those movements into some swings, you know, just to get again the body moving and turning the way they'd like. And then as soon as the ball gets gets down in front of them, it's okay, that that for me is a trigger. When there's a ball down in front of them, it's now every shot that they have in front of them has a purpose, has a a distance that they're trying to control, has a shape that they're trying to put on it, has a, the same preparation that's in the, in the round. So they don't stand in the same spot and just drag a ball in, drag a ball in, drag a ball in. No, they get into, we're getting them ready to compete. So we, we want them in that space of resetting after every shot, going through that process looking up, seeing the shot. And, and again, it's it's challenging on, on the range because there's so few realistic targets in one sense. And it, not not all of them. Some practice ranges are brilliant. They have flags out there and holes and different undulations. But there's some that are just, you know, just empty space and an expanse of grass in front of them, let's say, you know. So, so that would be then what they would do. They would work through their bag not all of the bag but just some shots that they feel are again you might have some stock shots you know but again equally you're working them up to competition readiness so that on the first tee box they are able to swing that club at the at the club head speed that is going to be maximally efficient for that drive or whatever and you build them up to there and that's where then the layered practice comes in, even for shots, even for soft shots at the start, you know, early morning start. You don't want them to get on the range and hit their first, you know, take out the driver and absolutely hit it out there 125 miles an hour club head speed. You know, we want to build into it. But even that first early lob wedge shot, there's a context behind that. You know, there's a real vision of I want this shot. I want it to literally just drop there on that little mound or just at that sign. And I want it to just to check there. And it, and we go down to tiny detail, just the, the dot on the eye of the, you know, the in sign or whatever that might be. And But even that, that's not just a, a swing. I'm just going through to warm up. No, no, this is a. 50% lob wedge because the shot I would where I would use this on the course might be to get it over a bunker close to the green. So even those little initial shots, there's context, there's relevance, you know, and then there's always this, this the purpose of we want to get through this practice as efficient as efficiently as possible. Let's say it might be for any of the shots you want to do, 
you want to make sure that it's one shot that you get it. Okay. So you're going to come in, you're going to pay, you know, I don't know, however many shots, let's, or maybe five shots. You want to hit five, six irons. And you don't want to hit six because you really want to limit it. So then it puts a bit of pressure on everyone. Everyone matters. So I really want to hit five good six irons. One might be a fade, one might be a draw, one might be a low, a low one, one might be a high one, you know, or they might all be draw, but then they're a draw from a different, a different angle. Or I'm trying to maybe just position his, he'll, he'll move his hips a little bit more. So he's, he's, he's targeting, it might be the exact same draw, but just at a different target. But there's always that context. And then as, as the player will move through their warm up, the club head speed will then Im- improve and increase as you know, their body starts warming up better because they've had their physical warm up beforehand. But then also that is matched with the context. I want you to drill this one really hard down that left side. And this is him saying to himself, let's say, so that every shot has that context and every shot has that layered approach. Because again, sometimes I I see guys out there and their first 12 shots, they're just kind of lobbing the ball out there. And that's a a missed opportunity for me, to be frank. It's... That for me is, that's just, you know, great. You've just warmed up a little bit of this, but you could have warmed that up with context right there and then and gotten you into that space that's going to really help you on the course better, quicker, earlier and more often. And I think that it just keeps coming back for me is efficiency of practice, likelihood of it transferring and how much context and layers can we put on the practice so that it's It's of the highest quality all the time. Hey, thank you so much for hanging out with Dr. Ed Coughlin and myself today. Thank you, Ed, for coming on and and sharing your knowledge, sharing your insights into how you're working with folks. This was fascinating. I hope that everyone enjoyed this. You can follow him on Twitter at Dr. Skill ACQ. And his website is the same thing, drskillacq.com. Make sure to go give him a follow. Let him know that you listen to this. Say thanks to him. He has a good info coming out all the time. He's a good follow. So make sure to do that. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, whether you're listening in Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We have an Amazon Alexa skill that you can go listen to this. You can ask the skill questions and it'll find old podcasts from the archives to hopefully give you some content that's relevant to that. That is pretty cool. Check that out. Download that. Let me know what you think. My name is Cordy Walker. This episode was hosted and written by me. You can follow me on Twitter at Cordy Walker and was edited, mixed, and produced by Just Hit Published Productions. 